Welcome to another episode of PhDivas. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM and humanities divide. And I'm Dr. Zain Yao, representing the humanities. And I'm bringing you another amazing interview from the University of British Columbia, which is on the ancestral, traditional, unseceded territory of the Musqueam people. And today I have with me Sauri, who's a PhD student in forestry. And I'm really excited to bring uh, Sauri uh, here today. She's one of the UBC public scholars, uh, much like Suryana Naipi, um, whose work is geared towards making the world a better place. And I think what's really fascinating about Sauri's project, as you'll find out, is that it's incredibly interdisciplinary. Again, she's in forestry, but I know that her project touches on um, globalization, capitalism, the Anthropocene, uh, crop sciences, um, indigenous cultures. And she is here to talk about all that today. So thanks for joining me today, Sauri. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Zain. Hello, everyone. My <laughs> name is Sauri. I'm very happy to hear, be here today. My work, as Zain explained it really um, kindly, my work involves working with indigenous communities in the Himalayas and in Zimbabwe and looking at their worldviews towards their landscapes. What are the relationships between the people and the landscapes? Both of the communities are having the issues around monocultural agriculture, cash crop, replacing diversified and very nutritious and disaster tolerant traditional crops. Yeah, that's, it's, and, and within that, there's such a, so many different complicated issues. I have to say that before I met you, I thought that forestry was one of those disciplines that just fed directly into industry. And of mm -hmm. course, in um, North America, Turtle Island, that tends to mean deforestation as less more so than forest, forestry. Although I understand that many companies now have like tree planting projects and so forth. And so meeting you, I suddenly heard like this approach that sounded incredibly interdisciplinary that you weren't just considering the science of it, but it sounds like social science. And as we'll get to later, I'm also a humanities arts approach. Mm -hmm. um, so where did your interest begin? And maybe do you want to tell us a little bit about your personal background and educational background before this point? Sure, that sounds great. I was an undergrad in political science back in Japan, and I was interested in looking at poverty reduction and development issues. When I was sophomore, I got an opportunity to visit a remote village in Bangladesh with NGO called um, ASEF, based in Japan. And there I found, you know, it used to be considered that Bangladesh is one of the poorest countries in the world. Mm. But when I was in the village and playing with the children and interact with, interacting with the different um, people in the village, I realized the richness of the culture, history, and the environment, natural environment that they are living within that we should not neglect. And we shouldn't consider economic development as the biggest thing that provide happiness to people. Mm -hmm. So that, and that was kind of a big inspiration to me. And I also thought that if I really want to understand the complex global issues and how development issues, um, environmental issues, um, conflicts, 
and um, these poverty reduction, these things, how they interact, interact and relate to each other, I need to have a perspective of natural science too. Mm. So then I decided to study environmental studies and um, because it was very difficult to shift major in Japan, I was looking for different environmental programs and I found a fascinating program in the US. Um, based At that time it was based in Boston, but the pamphlet of that program was amazing. Students were sitting in a circle discussing about issues at the site of Grand Canyon. Mm. So when I saw that, this is what I want to do. I really <laughs> want to travel. I really want to study the issues in the ground. You know, um, I wanted to have the experiential education. So that was a perfect program for me to to learn about the complex issues around sustainability while I travel to different parts of the U.S. Um, camp out in different national parks and state parks, in Sonoran Desert in Arizona, Yosemite in California, many different states and um, beautiful, beautiful sites. So that really kind of transformed my perspective into more of a, um, I guess it added a layer for my eyes to see the world differently. I th one of the things that I got was, one of the things that I got was, I started to see the history of the landscape. Not only looking at the landscape that, I, that we are seeing right now, but what are the, what are the histories, what are the historical ecology maybe, but, how, what are the landscapes um, looked like 100 years ago or 200 years ago? And what are the grounds that we are standing on right now? And I think um, that kind of perspective is very beneficial when we are looking at the interactions between us and different species mm -hmm. in the ecosystems too. Yeah, it was it was such an um, amazing program. We can get a master's degree by traveling <laughs> and learning about different sustainability issues on the ground. It's funny because since you mentioned that the pamphlet was something that really sold you, I feel like often we sort of see that type of design as sort of a, a lip service thing, but it's just know that it's actually transformative. I'm sure is validating the work of uh, the underrecognized work of people that do that type of design everywhere. That's true, uh, and I think because because the pamphlet was so true, it was the thing that we did in our program too. It was very honest, and it was very appealing in that sense. So it sounds like what has really been motivating you in this part of your academic history as you talk about it is like is not just an intellectual engagement with the issues but like this embodied engagement for being with people being with place exactly yeah I think that's looking at the whole process and embracing the process and 
being in the process and valuing that process is what I want to do and push for my PhD study too. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, what you're doing now or maybe do you want to talk um, perhaps specifically from your experience in the Himalayas or in Zimbabwe? Yeah, sure. So in the um, experiential education program, by the way, it's called Expedition Education Institute, and now it's based at Marlboro College in Vermont. Um, I got to learn different sustainability issues, including water issues, energy issues, rights of Native American people, and so on, how they are interacted with their natural landscapes and natural ecosystems. Um, after I did the study for two years, I thought I want to get a perspective now that um, I can see the world very differently through the lenses of people who have been living in nature in harmony for many years. And to do that, I searched different organizations, and I m finally met a professor who um, who founded an environmental think tank in India called Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment, which looks at um, both people's livelihoods and biodiversity preservation. And I told him that I want to study while living in the field, mm -hmm. while living in the village. I didn't want to become a researcher who stays in a town and once in a while go to the village and conduct interviews. I really wanted to experience the village life and understand how they live and what are the challenges and what are the, what are the values that they have in living in that um, context. And he said, oh, that's a good idea. And I can, um, I can have you in my organization and can give you um, basic living expense. So I decided to do that. And I lived in the villages in Sikkim and Darjeeling in the Indian Himalayas for one year from, nine, from 2011 to 2012 eventually became a village girl. So rather than being like a researcher, I wake up early with my host family and then just follow where, wherever my host mother and host father go. Um, my host father may go to the forest in the morning to collect fodder for cows, and then I just follow him. And I wouldn't be of a help in collecting fodder, mm but I just try my best whatever I can and also ask different names of the plants that he's collecting and learning how they live and, and what are the plants they are using for their livelihoods. And, and um, at night, I sit in the kitchen with the host sisters and host brothers um, around the fireplace. And it's such a calming moment to just sit tight together around the fire and talk about what we've done today, talk about our stories. And sometimes we have the homemade alcohol called <laughs> chi. Uh -huh. And it's, it's 
really a moment that I appreciated that it's very difficult to have that kind of moment when I am busy studying or working in the city. Mm -hmm. And so you'd mentioned a little bit to me earlier is that the political history of that area is very much bound up with um, what crops get get grown by these people. Mm -hmm. That's right. So Sikkim used to be uh, the kingdom until 1975, just like Bhutan. And uh, but it merged into India during that period of time, um, and for a long time. So the community that I worked with are the Lepcha people, or they call themselves as Rong, and these Rong people have been living in that part of the Himalayas for hundreds of years. I and they are considered as the the how do you say first people who mm. indigenous people yes, of the area indi yeah. yeah indigenous people um, who settled in that part of the area first and the way of life of the wrong people was that they cultivate many varieties of traditional grains, small grains, including different varieties of rice and millets and buckwheat in a shifting agriculture. So they are kind of a nomad that they cultivate millet and, and other crops for two years in a certain area, and then they travel to different, they shift their fields to different mountains after, afterwards. And around 19 to 20 years, Afterwards, they come back to the original site when to see the forest forest growth and test the soil to see if it's ready to be burnt again to support the agriculture. Um, and these kind of agriculture practices was present until around 1950s. That was a time when global economy started to come in to the area. And from 1970s, the cash crop cardamom became dominant in that villages, that people shifted their agricultural fields with more than 30, 40 varieties of crops to just one cash crop, cardamom. But that cash crop cardamom collapsed due to plant disease in early 2000s. Because mm, of monoculture? or Yes. Okay. That was the, the danger of monoculture. And so that made people realize that they cannot only depend on the monocultural cash crop. And people are now exploring other ways of diversifying traditional crop trying to diversify their cash crops as well. But I'm very interested in the traditional crops that don't have lots of um, cash value, per se, but have been cultivated in the villages for hundreds of years. And often they are very nutritious. Old people say they used to be very strong. Um, older people used to be very strong because they were eating these small grains and traditional crops. And these are 
just disappearing so rapidly these days. So I decided to document these traditional crops that are disappearing with my illustrations and photography and made a booklet of kind of a plant atlas of the traditional varieties of crops. And my plan is to give it back to the people, the booklet, um, when I visit again Sikkim next month. <laughs> It'll be sort of like a kind of homecoming after so much time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm very excited. So I think what's really fascinating in, with what you're discussing is you're really sort of thinking about ecology, of course, and not as in its its fullest scope, the ecology not just of plants but of human beings. Also, how does economy intersect with ecology, with politics? There's this amazing interdisciplinarity, I think, between what you study but also a very intentional way that that also translates, say, to your methodology. As you're saying, like, if part of what impacted these people originally had to do with the incursions of the global economy, and of course, within like wider histories of colonialism, of course, methodologically, in order to fix that, one cannot just simply come in as an outsider. And of course, many other disciplines are also so struggling with like the exploitative histories of their methodologies and disciplines. But how does one work with as as equal partners, as opposed to simply come in and impose impose an idea or simply extract value, like value in terms of research, economic value uh, from an area. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the whole idea of um, what I want my PhD to be. And like you said, as a human being, I guess the core question for my PhD research is to ask who we are as a human being. And how can we rehumanize ourselves in the time of when we are losing different abilities as human beings and depending a lot on, I guess, um, very effective modern technologies and losing our sense of communities and so on and losing the ability to live with other species and with ecosystems too. And so this seems to be like on a metaphorical level, since I'm someone who does literature, that the question of monoculture is not just one of plants, but also like a global sort of generic flattening out of of culture itself yes. um, that you're responding to. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So part of my study looks at what are the ways of being and what are the ways of knowing that the communities that I'm working with have and used to have and really embracing different ideas in different, of course, cult culture, different ecosystems. Um, I think what makes our world so rich is this complexity of diversity and how these complex diversity is supporting each other and interacting with each other. And it's just, a, I don't know, it's a, so much kind of an intricate art of amazing interactions. And people used to know how to live within that complex with experiences and with lesson learned, challenges, making mistakes, and so on. So I hope to get back to that. At least um, 
while embracing scientific knowledge and all the methodologies that we've developed the past years, I'm trying to incorporate the ways that we experience and the way that we could. What I'm trying to incorporate is that while embracing these scientific knowledge and methodologies that we developed in the past, we should also look at the indigenous knowledge and traditional ecological knowledge mm -hmm. that people developed over hundreds of years with the interactions with ecosystems and making mistakes and lessons learned from these mistakes. Mm -hmm. So part of what I saw um, in, in your project was that you talked about approaching it from very d different scales, from GIS, from entries. Do you want to talk about how you you layered all these different methodologies or talk about any specifics? Of, like, what did you get from all these different methodologies? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm trying to... I'm trying to use both modern technology and also learn the ancient technologies and and learning methods. So for my master's, um, so after I lived in the village for one year in Sikkim, I went back to graduate school at UC Berkeley, majoring landscape architecture and environmental planning. And there I, I complied, there I compiled all the study that I conducted in the Himalayas, made into three-fold study. The first one is the one-year experience of ethnography, looking at land use change. And the second one is land use change, but using satellite images and GIS. So what I wanted to do is, while having the people's perspectives on how land has changed, I also used kind of the above, looking from the sky, mm. how the land use has changed. And I think combining these different perspectives and strength um, is going to be useful, um, making sure that using modern technology will not superimpose outsiders' view upon the local people. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be very um, important to explore different kinds of community mapping and how we, how we share the power, how we incorporate different views and opinions. So it's going to be very interesting um, Th that how we how we could develop these modern me modern methodologies into more of a democratic ways of um, studying, mm -hmm. and the third part of my master's thesis was documentation about of disappearing traditional crops with my illustrations and photographs, which I made it into a book. So, what do you find? Um what was different for you about being able to do the illustrations as opposed to just the photos? Mm -hmm. So I guess like since you're talking about diversity of methodologies, also you're talking about a diversity of like uh, representative technologies in a way. And so what did what did balancing those two do for you that rather than just focusing on one? 
That's a very good question. Thank you. I used drawing because, first of all, drawing is more accessible to people. If there's a pen and a paper, anyone can draw. Or we don't have, we don't even need a pen and paper. If we have sticks and we have some soil, mm -hmm. then we can just draw anything or on the rock as well. I think it's kind of a uh, ancient technology <laughs> that people developed um, and also also of course it's an aesthetic part of it too the other thing that drawings and photographs is different is that when I draw I interact with the plants or landscapes or people whoever, whoever that I'm drawing on mm. drawing about and I learn about the details. When I draw a traditional plant, I look at the details that I wouldn't have been able to notice if I was just taking a picture. Oh, okay, yeah. And it takes probably maybe 50 minutes to 20 minutes or 30 minutes to draw the whole plant. And during that time, I'm interacting with the plant as a life, not just an object. And it's really about, I think, um, building relationships between me and the plant, too. So that part is very um, valuable to me. And also, I think drawing, when I draw landscapes especially, I think it's easier to show the key points or interesting part of the landscape that I want to emphasize. Um, yes, and photographs have great benefits to the details and the, the information and so on. So I try to use both. But I usually start with drawing because when I take out my camera um, before we, before I become friends with the people in the village, I feel it's very disrespectful. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost like extracting themselves. So, or their knowledge and their beings. So I normally start with my sketchbook and a pen to draw landscapes and, um, and plants and so on. And when I feel that I feel comfortable to take out my camera, and when people feel, when I feel people are comfortable um, being um, with me and don't mind if I take a picture of them, then I start um, shooting a photo too. That's such a wonderful point. I think that there's been increased understanding now that there's the way that photography is not a neutral technology. It also sort of reinscribes a form of exploitation, especially with the way that it uses in tourism and in these parts of the world that people come in uh, who are much wealthier than the people that they're visiting, snap photos, upload to Facebook, maybe take a photo with a kid, and then they just sort of leave. And like the photography is very much a culprit in that sort of easy, again, as you said, extraction of the image with, uh, with no material relation. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And that's the point, I guess, um, actually, I entered into the Nikon Salons photography competition last year. 
and I got the Miki Jun Inspiration Award from Nikon Salon. Congratulations! Thank you. I had two exhibitions in Tokyo and in Osaka um, last December and this February. And actually, that point that what you just described that was the point that selecting committee noted um, about my photographs that um, I guess they valued the relationships that I developed with the people that appear on the photographs. So when I, when I saw that, I thought I was very happy because it's something that, it's something that people do not recognize. Um, I guess it's not, it's not that people don't recognize, but I guess I was very happy when I saw that because that was the starting point of my whole research journey. And because when I spent the time in the village in Bangladesh when I was a sophomore, um, the NGO had, a, had their kind of concept that um, it's a mutual learning. So it's not that young people from Japan come to Bangladesh and help out something but it was a learning um, it was a learning process that was encouraged and it was it was a mutual understanding that was the center of the NGO's mission um, so respect towards the local people is very essential in our interactions with um, different communities, whether we are researchers or tourists. And because we have financial difference between mm -hmm. us too. So it's, it's sort of like, it's not enough to have a beautiful image. The beautiful image and the beautiful aesthetics need beautiful method too. Like there's yes. something about a, the beauty of justice, mm -hmm. I'd say. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's right. In that beautiful process itself, I hope that academics world will um, appreciate that process more. And I think we should to really look at what are the research process and what are the impacts that we are making, either good or bad. So I, you, we've talked a lot about your time in the Himalayas. Do you want to talk a little bit about your time in Zimbabwe? Sure. Um, so Zimbabwe, I guess many people wonder why Himalayas in Zimbabwe. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> what, what's the relationship between the two sites? Right. You? Yeah. Um, actually, so I, when I completed my master's, I got a scholarship from UC Berkeley that's called Scott Travel Scholarship, which I could go anywhere in the world to conduct similar research that I did for my master's. And... Um, I was actually thinking about going to Guatemala, but my co-advisor told me that there is a very interesting community in Zimbabwe in a remote area who are already interested in revitalizing these disappearing traditional crops because they are drought tolerant, and mm. people are seeing that drought is affecting 
the maize monoculture, and the ones that survive in the drought are, the, are these traditional crops. So that made me decide to change my plan and go to Zimbabwe. And that was in 19, 2016, March to April. The region that I stayed is called Majiwa. It's around the center of Zimbabwe. And it's a very remote area that we have to first fly from Harare to the second biggest city. And from there, we drive about three hours to to the villages. What was the experience of living there like? And how long did you stay there? I spent one month there. And I studied traditional crops that they are cultivating, what varieties they are cultivating, why they are cultivating, and created a sample plant atlas again with my drawings and photographs. And this time, I also conducted a drawing workshop with the communities to draw the traditional plants and their landscapes. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was, it was, um, the process actually started by the local NGO called Muone Trust. And they asked me, okay, so you're learning so many, so many things from us. What can you teach us? Mm, that's a very good point. Yeah. Let's yeah. be reciprocal. Yes. And I wonder what I can teach. There are so many things that I'm learning. Of course, they are. They have so much knowledge. They are skilled. And I wondered, I don't have anything to share. <laughs> but then um, I showed my master's thesis to one of the um, Moana Trust leaders. And he said, oh, maybe you can teach us drawing. And I thought, okay, then why don't we draw traditional plants so that we can all learn about the traditional plants and we can all reflect upon the beautiful landscapes that people are living in. So there were about 20 participants from um, seven years old to maybe 70 years old, men and women, children, um, came together to draw these traditional crops and the landscapes. It was very fun. Um, were the people that you stayed with, are they of a particular, uh, are they, do they identify as Zimbabwean or are they a part of a particular group or? Mm -hmm. They are Shona speaking indigenous people, okay. but Shona speaking people are the majority of, I, I guess, um, it's not a minority group in Zimbabwe. Okay. So. What sort of crops did you end up looking at? And yeah. what sort of things do you learn? And I guess what would be really interesting to me, if, um, if you could recall offhand, like what are some of the indigenous names of these crops? Or, sure, yeah. sure. Um, so major crops were finger millets, bulrush millets, or it's also called pearl millet, and also sorghum. And I especially liked finger millets because um, my um, my friend who brought me to the village, who is a British scholar, 
uh, who studied about small grains in that region in 1980, he documented more than 50 varieties within that finger millet. And each one has different names and uses and characteristics, strength. So one is good at, um, one is drought tolerant and one is very nutritious and one can be stored for 20 years. So wow. it's going to give people security, food security. Uh, my favorite one was called chikumbo. It's a part of the finger millet and it's red in color. It's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> and people like to make sadza. It's uh, sadza is the staple food that people eat. And normally now, mo now in modern days, it became maize that, um, but it used to be different kinds of sadza that were made out of different kinds of small grains. And this chikumbo is very tasty and it's beautiful. It's very beautiful, beautiful kind of a wine red in color. Okay. Yes, and people, it's very kind of a sticky, so um, it's hard to describe, but when I tasted it, I thought it's such a sophisticated food culture. <laughs> oh my God, I want to try this. <laughs> yes, you should. You're welcome to visit. <laughs> but it's, and it's, it's a, people say it's good to eat chikumbo with chicken. And there are other finger millets that suits with different vegetables and so on. But, um, yeah, chikumbo was my favorite. I think that also comes to another interesting aspect, which is that I don't think that the various cuisines um, within the Af African continent get any anywhere near the amount of respect as European or some East Asian cuisines do in terms of like complexity. When people think of sophistication or when people are willing to spend more than $10 on a dish, mm. there's a very definite hierarchy that tends to happen. That's right. So part of my research is revaluing these traditional food cuisine and traditional ways of cultivating and and overcoming this gap between the hierarchy mm. <laughs> that sometimes doesn't make sense. Are there other projects you'd like to talk about? I th it seemed like I saw that you brought I guess some of this methodology to your work at UC Berkeley because you said that you guys put together this proposal um, yes. for the campus. Mm -hmm. So while I'm looking at remote villages in the Himalayas and in Zimbabwe and learning about their traditional ways of relating to nature and traditional ecological knowledge and trying to revitalize and revalue these traditional knowledge and practices, I also look at urban areas where where most of us live in because I don't see a separation between suburban areas or urban areas or remote villages. I think we are we are in the same I guess we are related to each other and we are even though the context and issues specific, specifically might be different, we are having the similar issues. Mm -hmm. And if, I, if we really want to 
solve sustainability issues. I think we need to look at both. So that was my motivation to work on uh, Urban Project 2 during my master's. And we proposed to have a more of a drought-tolerant campus landscapes, replacing some of the lawns into seasonal wetlands. This area, the Bay Area in California, used to have different, many, many um, seasonal wetlands and um, diversity of diversity of plants, species. Now, UC Berkeley. Um, but UC Berkeley campus has this. Um, okay, I'll <laughs> it's okay. replace again. Um, but when UC Berkeley was founded, they looked at Yale and Harvard in the East Coast, and they placed lots of lawn, uh. which consumes a lot of water uh -huh. and needs fertilizer and so on which doesn't make sense to have it in the time that we are in the drought. Mm -hmm. So we proposed to replace some of the lawns into seasonal wetlands so we can host biodiversity and make it into a more of educational landscapes too, to make people think about where, where we are living and what climate and ecosystems that we are living in. That would also, um, the design will also mitigate flood impacts, which is a problem in the wintertime. So I really like the idea that um, I learned in the studio project at UC Berkeley that we see these crises of drought and um, climate change and different Anthropocene-related issues as an opportunity to create better space for us, create better ecological landscapes that we host more of a um, harmonious relationships with our environment too. So I guess what are the, you're just at the beginning of your program at UBC here. I was wondering like, what are, what are some next steps for you? Are there things that you also hope to do locally? I, um, are you continuing to work with the same uh, data? Or are you looking to go to new spaces? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I actually, so I'm in the beginning, kind of a beginning phase of my PhD work. I'm having comps in the fall. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thanks. And after that, I can finally go back to the field in Zimbabwe and try to develop this collaborative methodology with the communities to see the process, create a process of revitalization of traditional crops, looking at what works, what doesn't work, what are the challenges, what are the uh, successes, and really to document that process. I know that this takes a long time, and so probably it's kind of a life's task for me. <laughs> But I also see, but I also see kind of a hope and a strength in creating a network between people who are thinking about similar things and seeing the similar visions in terms of 
getting back to the ground and and getting back to who we are as a human being on earth and valuing the traditional ecological knowledge, traditional crops for um, to be able to be stable in the coming upcoming challenges and changes of climate change and so on. And I see myself as a coordinator or facilitator, facilitator to create the global network. And I'm very interested in um, creating a network between, or I'm very interested in connecting the people in the Himalayas and in Zimbabwe and also in Japan, who I, I know that some of my friends in Japan are trying to cultivate small grains like millet mm. and different type of, types of rice that we used to eat and cultivate it. Um, so these actions are there in different parts of the world, just like monocultural agriculture is expanding the whole different parts of the world. These small minority people are working towards um, how we can get back to be ourselves and embrace the diversity to be more stable in the uncertain times. So hopefully I can bridge these people and create kind of a power. Even though they are minority people in their own region, I think it would be a huge encouragement when we know that there are friends working towards the same goal in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So there's some way that like the local indigenous people can can focus on the can in their uh, own work sort of leverage global connections uh, for their specific work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess this comes to the question I started wondering is, which is how, which peoples do you hope to share the results to your research with? So on the one hand, it sounds like a part of it is like sharing the knowledge that you have back with the community that's also helping you produce it. But do you also have to think about, say, sharing it with like national, international policymakers, with politicians? Um, Mm -hmm. Who, which publics do you envision yourself sharing uh, th these results with? That's a good question. I guess I need to think about it more. But the first people that I want to share is, of course, the communities that I'm working with. And the second is probably the other communities that are having the similar issues around monocultural agriculture. And the third population is probably the my friends or the people who are not in, a, not in power, but are consumers, the consumers or my friends. Academic approach can be, can be done differently and looking at the process and incorporating different creative methods like art and using our senses and experiences that would, I think that would be critical for us to have an impact on problem sol impact on problem solution. Mm. And of course, the policymakers too. That makes me think about the experience that I had with the UNESCO 
headquarters in Paris last year when I did an internship and worked as a consultant at the end. We worked with pastoralists in east, eastern part of Africa. We, we had workshops to invite both pastoralists from the villages and also from the political and scientific world. So we had meteorologists and we have uh, policymakers and and try to create a dialogue between these people to share their different knowledges and different sciences. And the aim was to make the policymaker makers recognize the importance of indigenous knowledge mm. so that they can incorporate it into the national adaptation policy for climate change. So that's definitely going to be important and hopefully I can get there maybe after PhD. <laughs> yeah, as you said, it's sort of a lifelong process. I think that like the word like a sustaining work or making the work sustainable is just as applicable as talking about env environmental sustainability, like the sustainability of the project, sustainability of the networks. Absolutely, like <laughs> exactly. And I also have passion to share my work with the um, with people not not are in academia or in the policymakers, but like my friends who are working in different companies or different um, fields, and because I feel like I learned so much from the villages in these issues around monoculture and value of traditional knowledge and traditional crops, I feel like I I was feeling guilty not not sharing this information and not sharing this learning to many audience who might be interested in this. And so that's that was my motivation to actually getting into the um, Nikon Salon's photography competition because I wanted to share about my research and my learnings through visual methods. So I had drawings and I had photographs and I tried to share my experience in the village through the photos so so that people would people can also, the audience can also experience what the Himalayan village life can be and is like. So that is um, another another audience that I want to talk to. Mm -hmm. So this is another way that art helps, like the discussion of crop sciences, that mm -hmm. these things are so deeply interrelated and yeah, help each other in different ways, both disciplinarily and in the field. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Sauri. I think I wish you well on this project as it continues to unfold, and I hope it will be just as, I guess, rich and diverse as the crops that you hope these people will be able to like grow and attend to. And I think that the work you're doing is really exciting. I'm really glad to have been able to meet you. Thank you so much. It was such a great time with you. Thank you very much to our listeners. We were Peach Divas. Please like, subscribe, review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. And take care of yourselves, and thanks for listening. Bye.